There's an old saying that says you can't see the forest for the trees. Being a widow is like that. You get lost in the details of it, and you lose perspective on the bigger issues. And the bigger issue is, how are you going to handle the next 30 years? I'm pretty determined to figure out how to make the next 30 years the best years of my life. Hello, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a widow. Yeah, it does kind of sound like an Alcoholics Anonymous introduction. That one word says it all: widow. I was once part of something bigger than myself. I was a significant other. I was a partner, and now I'm not. Maybe we should start a widows anonymous group and have meetings. Kidding aside, these podcasts are meant to be a form of encouragement. They're not a number of steps. They won't tell you how to move through the grief. There won't be a list of things that you must do. These podcasts are just my stories, and through these stories, I hope you can feel a little less alone, a little stronger. Know that you're enough, and your situation is unique. And most of all, I want you to know that you're allowed to do things your way. Welcome to episode seven, titled "The Sugar Shack." When we found our house in the up north woods, the land was as important to us as the house. We have twenty wooded acres to forage for wild greens, mushrooms, and asparagus. There's an abundance of turkey, deer, squirrels, and grouse. There's even a trout stream. There are apple and pear trees, a fenced garden plot, two small feed plots, an incredible perennial garden, a gazebo, a potting shed with a tiny greenhouse, a woodshed, a barn, and lean-to. Three of the apple trees are mature enough to produce apples. The woods are full of mature maple trees, and the garden soil is rich. We never plan to be homesteaders, but it's definitely an option. Before our weekend chores around the homestead, we used to love to go out for breakfast on Saturday mornings, and then we would noodle garage sales on the way home. During one of our noodlings, he bought me a squeezo. If you have apple trees, you probably have an apple peeler core. But if you can find one, you also need a squeezo. A squeezo is a large hand crank food mill, so you can process bushels of apples or tomatoes without having to peel them or remove the seeds. That first year, we had a bumper crop of tomatoes and apples. Once I had the apples or tomatoes ready, I'd holler, "Hey, squeezo man, I need your help!" Together, my husband and I would make dozens of jars of tomato juice, apple sauce, and apple butter. The apples from our trees were amazing. But the absolute best thing from our land is maple syrup. If you live up north, you've encountered several opportunities to buy maple syrup at local fairs, flea markets, and farmers markets. We were at the hardware with my grandson late in the winter, the first year we moved north, and they had a display of sugaring supplies. His eyes lit up. Mine too, and I told him, "Yes, we can give it a try." It was a bit funny, though. We moved into the house in late November. There were a lot of red and yellow and orange maple leaves on the ground, but no leaves on the trees. By March, the leaves were buried in the snow. I had to use twig branching patterns and bark to figure out which ones were the maples. One weekend, we tapped three maple trees and managed to make a little syrup. And we were hooked. It was so good. That summer, I checked the yard and found that we live in a maple hardwood forest. In fact, if it's not a spruce, a beech or a birch, it's a maple. 
We have hundreds of maple trees, so I ordered more taps. Late in the summer, my husband and I found an old wood cook stove at a garage sale. Not a pot belly or typical wood stove, but an old-fashioned cast iron and enamel wood-fired kitchen stove. My husband bought it for me, and we began making plans to build a sugar shack. I was so excited about being able to finish the syrup in the shack rather than steaming up the house. It takes 40 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup, and that produces a lot of sticky steam. So during each of my grandson's visits that summer, they would work on the sugar shack. They cleared the trees, leveled the ground, and laid out the foundation. They ordered sand and pea gravel. They picked up four-by-sixes. Each visit, they did a little more, then ordered the supplies they'd need for the next visit. Once the sand and pea gravel were in place and compacted, all the boys were here, and they helped move the stove in place. Then we would just build the walls around it. By September, there was a foundation and a stove and a pile of two-by-fours. On warm, sunny days, my husband would head out, see you later, I'm going to work on the sugar shack. I'd smile and go off to work, but he got little done. I was working from home and I'd take a break and I would find him sitting in the lawn chair, just looking at the shed. He was a commercial carpenter. He built 30-story buildings. He built bridges. He built hospitals, but he was having trouble with a sugar shack. I knew his health was declining. How is it? I didn't know he was dying. The sugar shack was his last project. It was the last thing he built for me. It still hurts so much to see that unfinished skeleton. I tried to finish it myself. In January, not even a month after he died, I saw a posting. Someone was taking down an old barn and had corrugated metal siding. I called and got a really good price. All I had to do was go get it. Of course, it was extremely cold and windy that day, but I hooked up the trailer and headed out. It was the first time I'd hooked up the utility trailer myself, but I did it. And off I went. About a half mile down the main road, the trailer popped off the hitch. I'd hooked up other trailers before, but it was the first time with this trailer, and it was the first time without him. Maybe he would have noticed that the lock pin was missing. I had hooked up the safety chains, and I managed not to get hit by the trailer, but now it was part on the shoulder and part on the road. Living up north, there's no one around to help. No cars even go by. I didn't even know anyone to call. I couldn't lift the trailer and just put it back on. So I pulled it with the Jeep, hooked to the safety chains, back onto level ground. I had to maneuver the Jeep into the exact position to get the trailer back on the hitch. I must have gotten in and out of the Jeep ten times to get it in the right spot. Slowly, I drove to the nearest hardware to get a pin for the top of the hitch. I had directions to the barn, but it was definitely out in the middle of nowhere. I passed an occasional gas station, party store, or restaurant, but due to COVID, they were all closed. I finally found a creepy old abandoned house and a torn down barn, and I wondered, what on earth am I doing out here alone? I must be crazy. I'm a half an hour early, so no one's there. I'd promised my husband I'd get my CPL, but I hadn't done it yet. 
The area I was driving through was wide open with no bushes, no hedgerow, no cover of any kind. It's cold, the wind is blowing, a negative wind chill, and I realize I have to go to the bathroom. I really have to go, and I am not happy about it. I found a place, and you don't need to know the details, but when I got home, I googled personal female urinary device. Such a formal title for a basic need, but that's what I googled, and amazingly, they exist. Check out Shiwi, Tinkle Bell, and Go Girl. There are hundreds of different kinds, and you need one. Your daughter needs one. Your granddaughters need one. I now have one in my hiking backpack, in the Jeep, and one out in the barn. The guy finally shows up and opens the gate so that I can drive back by the barn, and he shows me the pile. I give him the money, and he walks away. I have a 10-foot trailer with a 4-foot gate. The pieces of siding are 12 feet long. All this time, all this trouble for nothing? Then it hit me. Take the gate off, strap it to the trailer. It was a struggle. That dang gate must weigh at least 100 pounds. I strapped it down, then put the siding on top, figuring it would hang off just a little. No good. It hung nearly to the ground. I'd never make it home that way. There were a couple of 12-foot timbers laying around, and the guy took pity on me and gave them to me. I strapped those on, then put the pieces of siding on top of it and strapped the whole thing down, and I was finally on my way. Frozen face, frozen hands, frozen butt, but I had what I needed to finish our sugar shack. In early March, I did throw myself into making syrup. I tapped 13 trees, emptied buckets two times a day, made three 55-gallon storage tanks, built a cinder block stove with old freezer racks, and boiled each weekend in old turkey roasting pans and a canning pot. I collected 250 gallons of sap and made a little over five gallons of syrup. Due to COVID shutdowns of schools and workplaces, I frequently had help boiling over the fire. I like doing it because it's a reason to get out of the house and be outside, even though it's not yet feeling much like spring up north. Last year, I had to empty the buckets before and after work. This year, I'm retired, so I thought I'd just empty them once a day. But I quickly realized they're too heavy to lift and pour through the strainer and into the storage barrels if you don't do it twice a day. So far this year, I haven't had much help. I'm glad COVID's allowing us to get back to normal, but I miss the time my kids and grandkids were able to spend with me last season. Maple syrup season is a bit late this year due to the amount of ice and snow on the ground and the cold temperatures. The days need to be above 40 and the nights below 30 for the sap to flow. 40 is definitely a heat wave with all the sub-zero temperatures we've had in January and February. I set my taps on March 14th, but it took three days to get about five gallons of sap. When my kids came up the first weekend, we had just 15 gallons of sap to boil. I drive the four-wheeler with the wagon and barrel to the trees to empty my sap buckets. With the cold weather, I can only do about five trees before I have to stop to warm my hands. The second time the kids came up, the high temperatures were in the teens, and it was eight degrees at night. We had frozen buckets of sap. 
we bundled the little ones in snowsuits, hats, and mittens to ride the four-wheeler and empty the buckets and to haul a bit of firewood, but it was too cold and windy to do any boiling. It took three weeks before I finally had a 55-gallon storage barrel full of sap. With my barrel full, I decided to move it out of the wagon and replace it with an empty barrel. I wanted to set it on cinder blocks so I could use the spigot to draw off the sap for boiling. The cinder blocks were frozen in the ground. I wanted to put the barrel in the loader bucket of the tractor. The tractor stuck in reverse. I decided to back the sap wagon to the loader bucket, but after trying to back it up and get it in the right position for 20 minutes, I finally gave up. So I got some pieces of 6 by 6 and a piece of heavy plywood. I laid it out behind the trailer and I planned to just slide the barrel off the trailer onto the platform. That dang barrel did not want to move. I was determined. I finally got it to the back edge of the wagon. I glanced at the four-wheeler. The weight of the barrel had jackknifed the hitch into the air, taking the four-wheeler with it. The barrel slid off the wagon and landed on its side. I tried to stand it up, but I couldn't. 55 gallons of sap weighs almost 500 pounds. I stood there watching the sap spilling out of the barrel onto the ground. It was so cold and so hard to get that sap. Three weeks of collecting in the cold. I was furious. I kept trying to stand the barrel back up, and finally I did it. I looked in the barrel. I'd lost about 30 gallons of sap, and what was left was mostly ice. Once the snow was gone, I decided to switch and hook up the sap wagon to the zero-turn mower. It was so nice to be able to maneuver that wagon anywhere I wanted it. It was great until mud season arrived. I'd forgotten that zero-turn mowers have wide, flat tires with very little tread so they don't tear up the grass when you mow. Here in northern Michigan, we don't have permafrost, but we do have perma-mud when the winter frost comes out of the ground and the spring rains arrive. So not only am I trying to drive the zero-turn through the mud, I've got a sap wagon with another full barrel of sap that weighs about 500 pounds. I couldn't unhitch the wagon because the tongue would flip up and hit me and the barrel of sap would go flying out the back. I didn't even try to move the barrel. I'd learned my lesson. So I spent 10 hours boiling down the sap so the sap wagon wouldn't weigh so much. In between adding more sap to the pans and feeding the fire, I hauled 20 buckets of pea gravel, one bucket at a time, to the muddy area under the zero turn and the wagon. Finally, at 10 p.m., wearing a headlamp, I drove it out of the mud. I now have two 55-gallon barrels in my sap wagon. Not only do they balance the wagon better, but I can move half of a full barrel if I need to. I still have it hooked to the zero turn, and I've been getting up at 6 a.m. when the ground is semi-frozen to collect my sap. Yesterday, I dropped a full five-gallon bucket. It landed flat on the ground, and the sap flew up around me like I had stepped into a splash pad. Next year, I need to place the taps a little lower on the trees to make it easier for me to handle the full buckets. Sadly, the kids won't be able to come up to boil again, so I'll be on my own. The sap's running now, and it should continue for the next two weeks. As long as it's not raining, I'll be out there boiling for six to eight hours a day. 
My husband was never into all the collecting and boiling. This is my hobby. But I sure do miss having him watch the fire or the pans for a bit, coming out to check on me, bringing me a hot cup of coffee, or even lunch. He was always an extra pair of hands when I needed help. It would be a lot easier with a sugar shack. That's why my husband wanted to build it for me. My sugar shack is still just a skeleton, and my fancy old wood stove remains under a tarp. I'm afraid to take the tarp off. It may be ruined after sitting out there under the tarp for more than a year. I still have that pile of metal barn siding, but I have no idea how to cut it and attach the siding myself. And there's no roof. I have no idea how to make a roof, and he didn't leave me any plans. They were all in his head. My sugar shack was my husband's last project. I keep telling myself, it's a shack, right? That means no matter how I do it, it'll be okay, even if there's a bit of rain or wind that makes its way inside. But here's the thing. If my husband were here to finish it, it would be perfect. Perfect for me. Thanks so much for listening. All the podcasts in this series can be found on my website. The website is we to just me podcast.com. They're also located on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, YouTube, and many other popular podcast feeds. New episodes are published weekly. Till then, I hope you have a really great week.